and welcome to Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And this is episode number 24. Um, and today we're going to be discussing a slightly oddly titled <laughs> topic that was um, coined by Simon, I might add. Can only apologise. Uh, careful versus manhandle. How do you treat your books? <laughs> Followed by um, Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner versus The Love Child by Edith Olivier, which are two books of Simon's choosing. Um, which I was forced to read by him, <laughs> and we'll have a very interesting discussion about them anon, I'm sure. So, Simon, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm discovering how um, how draconian I apparently am. I haven't forced both these topics on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, we'll, readers, readers, listeners will discover at the end which book you forced on me for next episode. Um, can you remember it for starters? I can't. <laughs> well, well, that'll be a surprise for you as well. I know, I remember. Okay. <laughs> and it's really good, actually. Ah. Have you read it? No. Oh, well, we are. <laughs> so this is, this is all very cloak and dagger, but all be, all will be revealed. <laughs> that'll keep you going for the next forty-five minutes, won't it? Um, <laughs> it feels like we've not talked in absolutely ages, and indeed, since we spoke, I have appeared on television, as you know. <laughs> Um, I can safely say this now because it's no longer an iPlayer, so people can't see it. But I was on the quiz show, Eggheads, everybody. If you want to see me get questions about English literature wrong, <laughs> that's the place to look. Well, to be fair, it was only the one question. Well, I, the other questions were about art and film. <laughs> so. Well, but that question was hard and I didn't know oh, the answer you. either, so there we are. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I shan't reveal the question in case anyone can manage to find it and tell us that they... You know, do know the answer. Nobody knew the answer to that question, Simon. Nobody. Nobody did. did. <laughs> we <laughs> didn't know it. Nobody can have done. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Um, but yes, I'm good. But I have not been on an exciting holiday, which is what you've been doing. So tell us yes. about that. Well, you know, I've just been swanning my way around France, as you do, for several weeks. <laughs> it was lovely. I was in Provence, and um, it was so hot and beautiful, and everything was just white and blue and relaxing and everything was I just was in love with it I just thought I could actually move here oh, wow. I, I don't often feel like that when I go on holiday because you know how wedded I am to London but I just thought actually you know and the tabac was for sale um next to the Café du Commerce which was just the most ridiculously French village in the world and I thought I could buy this tabac shop and I would basically be at the centre of this village. I'd be selling the newspapers, the stamps. Everyone would come to me for gossip. It would be amazing. Are you recording this episode from the middle of France? Is that where you are now? Have you set up a new life yourself? Yeah, I mean, I've basically already bought a house, so <laughs> this is happening. Um, but honestly, it was the most wonderful place, and it was literally like time had stopped, circa 1952. Oh. You would have loved it. So the Queen's coronation, no, sorry, Queen's accession, coronation was in 1953. Um, did you get much reading then while you were there, or was it too much sightseeing and sun soaking and all that sort of thing? Well, I did do a lot of sightseeing, because um, there's lots of very interesting Roman things there um, in the immediate vicinity. But I did get reading done, but unfortunately I took with me enormous books. So even though I did read a lot, it doesn't seem like a lot, because I only ended up reading like two books. But they were both 600 pages long, which I felt that was fine. Definitely. What what were they? Well, it's a non-fiction book, The Victorians by A.N. Wilson, which was published years ago and everybody read and I didn't read. Um, <laughs> I, because, you know, I'm doing my master's degree in Victorian studies, so mm. I need to um, kind of brush up before the course starts. 
um, and reading that book made me realise how little I did know about the Victorians. I think it was published in 2005 when I took a Victorian paper, because about the week before the paper, our tutor sent me an email saying, you should all read this book. I thought, I've only got a week to go to. I'm taking the exam. I'm not going to learn new stuff now. No. <laughs> I need to read the novels. It's 600 pages long. Yeah. <laughs> what was it good? Um, do you know what? It was brilliant. It's one of the best non-fiction books I've ever read. Oh, wow. Yeah, really recommended. It's very well and very engagingly written, very humorous in places. And, you know, it's a lot to take in. But there's, I mean, I came away from it thinking I want to go back and reread bits and um, also, like, go away and read some of the stuff that he talks about. But it's a fantastic starting point for anyone who's got serious interest in the Victorians. I mean, like I say, it's 600 pages long and there is lots of, like, political stuff in there. So if you're not massively interested then probably not for you but if you have a genuine interest and want to understand more about the victorian psyche then um it's amazing i loved it gracious no it does sound good i did i'm trying to decide do i have that sort of serious interest in victorians because as you know my my love begins and ends in about sorry begins in 1918 ends in 1939 but um <laughs> you perhaps could make an exception for um a.m wilson yeah and it's very good i was um, going to ask you actually have you read any of his fiction books no, I didn't even know who wrote any. Yeah, because they um, it's listed inside, and there's a book called I want to say some something and Wolf, Wolfred and Wolf. Oh, that does ring a bell. Yeah, yes. it's listed for the Booker Prize, and it's about um, I think the grandson of Wagner or something. This um, yeah. and, and and something to do with Hitler. I'm not sure. Something interesting like that. Anyway, it's historical. Um, and it sounded like the sort of thing you'd like. Ooh. So I wondered if you'd read it. But no. To clarify, Ian Wilson is not the same person as Angus Wilson, right? No, I don't think so. Okay. I've always been confused, but not enough to actually go and look it up and find out, which I could do no, in I a matter just... of no time at all. No, 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 because his name's not Angus. Um, oh, that, would, that would solve that, it. Thank that you. Is that up. Um, <laughs> it's called, hang on, what's the book? I'm looking it up now. Fiction, fiction. Not Helpfully not listed on the front of this book. So maybe it wasn't published when this was published, but um, it was, someone will know, I'm sure. And you'll look it up, won't you? Oh yeah, I'll look it up and I'll pop it in the comments. Yeah. Um, If anyone has read it, I'd be interested to know if it's any good, because I think he's a great non-fiction writer, but I don't know about his fiction writing. Hmm. Yes, it's not often you get people who are very good at both, is it? No, it's not. So maybe he's, you know, a polymath in that way. We'll see. Hmm. And um, what was the other 600-page book? Oh, this was, like, the most awful book I've read in my life. Oh, no. Um, I have to read it for my course, Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Oh, right. Yes, I, like everyone born after, like, 1900, have never read a Walter Scott book. Oh, quite. And I don't think you ever need to. Um, I've read it for you, and I've made the decision. <laughs> it was, honestly, everything that happened in there could have happened in 10 pages. Oh, no. 600 pages later, I got to the end, which I had worked out from the end of the first page. <laughs> Is there a lot of musings on the beauty of Scotland or something? No, it's not one of the Scottish ones. Oh, is it it's not? a very poorly, um, historically constructed version of the Middle Ages. Oh, no. Oh, gosh. <laughs> like every single stereotype and every single historical inaccuracy that you could imagine. Um, as I did teach the Middle Ages this year for my um, to my kids at school, I was just like, this is so wrong. Everything in here is wrong. And there's lots of, you know, terrible racism and just, yeah, in general, awful and so ponderously written. Um, I'm a quick, very quick reader, and it took me two weeks to finish. Oh, wow. I, I had to reread every sentence twice because the, the syntax was so ridiculous. And it's filled with, like, these and nows. 
Yeah, I went. I was at Edinburgh earlier in the year, and I always think when I go there. Always of the three times I've been to Edinburgh, <laughs> I, always, I always think um, how embarrassing it must be to have that huge statue of Walter Scott when nobody reads him now and nobody really wants well, to. But no. maybe his time will come again. I don't think it ever will. No. Okay. I've got I've got Kenilworth somewhere, but um, I may yeah, get rid of it now. Yeah, just give it to the charity shop. It's totally fine. People <laughs> call that book, Simon. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, he did write a very interesting um, essay on the fantastic. He's one of the first people to write about the fantastic, which um, right. is—I think he was writing about Hoffman, maybe. But um, that was yes. I remember I had to get that out of Morden Library, and the, the librarian wasn't there to take it out of the restricted section, so I had to sort of crawl through some bookcases to get to it. Sorry, you rebel! <laughs> I'm such a rebel. What, Library like rebellion. <laughs> some of my business cards. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I'm reading? Well, you know that I have. A debilitating obsession with books about reading. Yes. So currently, I've just started a book called Why I Read: The Serious Pleasure of Books by Wendy Lesser. Oh, um, nice. Yes, and it's very pretty. It's got a little sort of cartoony part of books on the cover. Um, it's an American book. I bought it in America last year. Um, I think the same time I bought The Shelf by Phyllis Rose. Um, I've not got very far. In fact, I'm page twenty-two. But um, already, she's talked about um, Arnold Bennett. The Old Wife's Tale, which I recently read, so that was quite nice. She also seems to really love Henry James, so I'm not sure we're going to get on, but I'll do my best. <laughs> no, I don't understand anyone who likes Henry James, but there you are. No, we're quiet. And the other book I'm reading, so I've got a fiction on the go as well, um, Elizabeth Cambridge, um, Susan and Joanna. Oh, I love Hostage to Fortune. That's what she wrote, isn't it? She did, and I love that one as well. I've read, I read that a long time ago, and again, I've read it since. Um, this one I bought, well, it's, it's almost impossible to find a copy of, um, and in fact, I've never seen a copy of it online, I don't think. But I was at a village fete in Lower Slaughter. Of course, <laughs> um, And just happened to see it there for 50p. And I, I clutched my friend Mel, who was with me, who was not remotely interested, um, and came away with it. And it's one that, you know, when you've got a book you really want to read, I don't know if you do this, but I um, think I must wait till I'm exactly the right mood to read it because it's such a treasure that if I read it when I'm a bit tired or if I've got a headache or if I'm, you know, not in the right frame of mind, then it'll be a waste. Yeah. No, I'm the same. Yeah. So. Well, I can just imagine your little face when you saw that book. <laughs> I also um, had, the same, had the same fate. There's a, a mug that said Charles on or something, and I said, oh, if only they had one called Simon. And as I said it, they turned around a mug so the name Simon was facing outwards, so I thought, oh, I have to buy this one now. So that's my pen pot. Oh, dear. I can recommend Lover Slaughter if anyone wants to go. It's a beautiful little cot. It's in the Cotswolds, and it's got a lovely river running through it, on which, if you say which, you can race plastic ducks at a village fate. <laughs> oh. um, I went there solely because it has a funny name, not realising there's a village fate, until just driving innocently along a road, a man shepherded us into a field. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, this place sounds amazing, and it's like, you know, complete and utter fate that you were there. Fate indeed. <laughs> Like what I did there. Yeah, I really liked it. <laughs> oh dear. Well, that's quite enough of all of that. Let's talk about our first topic. Yes, sorry, lots of rambling. I mean, we just haven't spoken to each other in so long, everybody. We haven't, yes, um, So, Careful versus Manhandle, I'm going to leave this one up to you because you um, came up, you found it somewhere? Someone talked about it somewhere? Um, I can't remember if someone reminded me of it recently, but... Um, where I first came across it was in a book by Anne Fadiman called Ex Libris. Have, mm. you read, have you read that? It's really lovely. I have indeed, yes. Yes. So she has a chapter called Courtly versus Carnal Lovers. I, I didn't really want courtly and carnal in our, in <laughs> our, in our um, subject line. 
subject line, something with email, is it? What's the word? Title. Um, yeah. and, <laughs> um, and she talks about how, I think the chapter's called You Must Never Do That to a Book, which is a note that a maid or, um, or a cleaner or something left on, an, on a book that her brother had been reading in a hotel somewhere. Um, because he'd, I think, folded down the covers, sorry, the corners of the pages, or left it open on a um, folded outwards, or something, something um, that, that she was considered the actions of a carnal lover of a book <laughs> rather than the courtly lover of a book. And I can't remember exactly how she defines those, but it's, um, but the implications are pretty obvious. So a courtly lover is very, very decorous and very, um, you know, treats everything, treats books very carefully. Um, Loves books, but loves them in a way that leaves them exactly the same back on the shelf afterwards. And how she describes a carnal lover of books is someone who um, loves the content of a book, I guess, but the actual book is just there to give the content of the book. So they will fold down corners, they'll write their shopping list on the back page, they'll do all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, how I wrote it in a text to Rachel <laughs> left, <laughs> left her alarmed. <laughs> so, yes. Um, Momentarily, I assume, thought of contacting the police. But <laughs> oh dear. Um, what are your early thoughts on this? Well, I think for me, it's very much depends on the type of book, really, mm. um, and the purpose for which I'm reading it, Simon. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, paperbacks for me, I'll do whatever I feel like with because I don't, I'm not bothered by them unless they're lovely vintage ones like Old Penguins or something. Um, but if it's a hardback that I've bought specially, like a first edition or it's a lovely old edition of something, that book will be kept pristine. Mm. Um, I will remove the dust jacket before I read it. Oh, wow. Put it down safely somewhere so it doesn't get ripped or damaged. Um, certainly if I'm taking it in a bag somewhere to read, then I'd take the dust jacket off. Um, I, I always use a bookmark. I cannot abide folded down corners. Mm. Really bothers me. Unless, I mean, the only time I, I mean, I'm doing that with a book at the moment, but it's because it's a paperback and I'm, I'm using it for research purposes. So I'm folding bits over so I can go back to them. Cause I, I hate using those flippy, you know, those little, um, those neon things. Yeah, yeah. They're really annoying. Um, and they always end up being at the same place. So I can never actually see why I've put it there. So it's really stupid. Um, so I'll do like with books that I'm reading just for for pleasure, and I'm not planning on keeping the book. Like it's you know it's paperback, and I'll just give it to the charity shop when I'm finished with it. Then yeah, I'll fold over the pages and stuff. But if it's like a nice book, like a Persephone book or a really nice book that I've bought for the edition as well as the content, then it will be treated with the utmost reverence. <laughs> and it yes. certainly will never be lent to anybody because I can't trust them to look after it in the way that I would. Oh yes, we need to do to lend or not to lend in another episode. But um, I um, am much more sort of careful with any type of book. I think in that I would certainly never write in any book in a pen. Um, oh no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. So, um, I do write. I write my I write my name and where I bought it and the date I bought it on in pencil in the front and That's the date cool. I finished it on in pencil in the back. Oh really? That's yeah. Great. Um, yeah, I sort of the the pencil date uh, when I finished in the back thing I stole from my aunt Jack who's um, always done that and I've got a few of her old books um, and she yeah it's it's always nice to see the sort of the, the gap between when she bought it and when she finished it and indeed for my own it's it's quite quite satisfying to put a date in that's you know ten years after I bought it or something yeah I think yes it did happen eventually um, and occasionally I'll I always make um, 
little lines on a page in pencil and then a note of the page number at the front if I've got bits I want to quote in a review or something like that. That's a very organised system. Isn't it just? (laughs) But that is the absolutely the utmost, sorry, the most that I would ever do with the book, I think, in that I, even with tatty paperbacks, I won't fold down pages and I won't do any of that, um, even if it's in terrible condition already. And ironically, what I do love getting a book that's got pen pen in it before I've got it, and I don't really mind what condition it is when I've got it. I'm very happy to buy a book that's got corners folded down and a tatty cover and bits bitten out of it or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I, but I can't bring myself to do any of that myself or to watch other people do it. No, so it's quite funny. I was just thinking, I love it when I get a book, a second-hand book from a bookshop, and I find that somebody's scribbled a shopping list in the front or mm-hmm. has... I always tend to find books where people have been doing very complicated algebra sums. <laughs> Do you? Um, always penguin paperbacks. How bizarre. Where you find a sort of a half of a sentence or just something scribbled and you can't work out what exactly it was about. But it's like this moment in someone, obviously maybe they've been on the phone and they've quickly written something down or, or something. And you have that snapshot of someone's life. And it's fascinating to be the person who picks it up next mm, to have mm. a connection with that person. And I think actually, you know... I'm I'm not giving anyone the pleasure of having that when they get my book. Um, I do sometimes tend to leave little things in there when I give them to charity shops. Like I'll leave a receipt in there or something like that, you know, just a bit of interesting ephemera. But oh, deliberately. Yeah, but oh, that's nice. I love finding things like that. So I do normally leave a little or a little bookmark or something. Um, and I actually, I mean, I do I do write a lot in books and I do underline a lot in books, but only in paperbacks. I don't do them in hardbacks because I just feel like hardbacks are special for some reason. Hmm, that's interesting. I treasure them more, but paperbacks I write all over. Yeah, yeah. My university books have still got all my things. And if I read something, uh, actually, even in a hardback, if I read something and disagree with it entirely or think it's ridiculous, I'll always underline it and put an exclamation mark. <laughs> oh, I have done that, but again, in pencil. But I have done that. Um... I always find it quite embarrassing to look back at university, so undergraduate books, so look where I've just written things like feminism in the in the, in the margin. Yeah, I and, that's right. yeah. and the reason I interesting in the margin. <laughs> um, yes, in fact, well, the reason I tended to do it, particularly with Shakespeare, when I was reading that, was um, so I could flick through and find them again. So I, I wrote an essay on crying in Shakespeare. Um, and so my copy has lots of times in the margin where it just says tears. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's like it's the least interesting note ever because it's like it's not adding anything to it it's just for me to try and find it but it looks like I thought oh I found something tears yeah. or tears who knows wow. <laughs> it'll, it'll be a mystery for someone in the future yes but I think I may have given away that copy and replaced it so someone may already be enjoying that mystery there you are um, have you ever found anything particularly interesting in a, in this book you bought um, like, like a receipt or a, something like that yeah, I mean, I often do find um, postcards, actually, um, with little things, um, with kind of messages on the back, and which I always love, um, and, you know, really just boring things like, hi, loving it here, you know, something, and I always think, oh, who are these people? And sometimes I Google them and think, oh, maybe I'll be able to find them somewhere, but I never have done. I have looked up the addresses that people have put on postcards in our books to see what sort of house they live in. Or yeah, sending, no, sending that it to. Well. Yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, um, I love it. And, yeah, I often find receipts. I find it interesting to see what people... I mean, as old receipts tend to be a bit more boring because they don't itemise, so it would just be like books, £1.49, books, £1.49. <laughs> well, what was the book? I want to know what other things that they, they bought with this. Um 
and you know bookmarks things like that um, it's interesting because if I found a receipt on the floor in a street I wouldn't be remotely interested but if it's in a book <laughs> then I've already sort of made up all sorts of things stories in my head about the sort of person who would own that book <laughs> I want to find out more and you know it's a little story within a story isn't it yeah um, I often find you get like um, newspaper re- reviews or yes. relevant stories that's always yeah. nice and I, I often actually find newspaper clippings as a bookmark and those really frustrate me because I can't often, there's no way of, of being able to date it. And some of them, especially in like older, much older books, references to things. I'm like, oh, when is this? Like 19, some, often I think oh, it must be 1930s or 40s, but, um, or I found things that have been referring to the war and stuff, which has been quite interesting. Um, and I always make sure I keep them carefully inside the book. That's nice. Yeah. Um, to go back to the, um, so we wandered slightly from the main topic, but I think in an interesting way. Um, what's the worst thing you've ever seen someone do to a book? Oh, well, my my sister does that really annoying thing where she will bend the pages fully around. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, off the book by the, the printed pages inside, and it drives me insane. And then she's always like, oh, it's really funny because, you know, I always have pages fall out of my books. I'm like, yeah, why do you... <laughs> It's <laughs> fine every time. And whenever she borrows a book from me, I'm like, please, can you just not bend the spine? Because it's going to come. The amount of books that I don't ever get back from her because she's like, oh, you know, I had to put a bit of sellotape on it. I'm like, oh, just, just keep it. Just buy me another copy. <laughs> Ridiculous. And also, um, I had to watch once as she was reading a book that she borrowed from me, and one of my nephews ripped the front cover off. <gasps> Oh my gosh. So, it's okay, it's fine, we can stick it back on. I was like, just keep it. Yeah, I will I never speak to you again. Yeah. <laughs> um, I Very early in my university life, I did have, to, a friend was around for a cup of tea, and I did have to chastise her in the nicest way I could when she put a cup of tea down on one of the books on my bedside table. No, no just don't do, do that. that. Do not do that. That's she, a tea ring, stain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And again, I quite like it for buying on hardback that's got a tearing stain on because I think, oh, someone had a cup of tea on this in 1930 <laughs> or something. But not on my books. <laughs> my... <laughs> not on my watch. Not on my watch, indeed. <laughs> um, when I borrowed the Map and Lutia books by Fenton from my friend Barbara, she had lovely folio editions. In fact, I also have those now. Um, not the same ones. But um, when I first read them, she lent them to me. And I was so worried about the covers because they had that sort of, you know, folio sometimes have that slightly porous, like, yeah. fabricy cover. That um, and I was reading them on the school bus, so I covered them in brown paper. <laughs> so, so I must have looked like I was reading something terrible on the, on the you know, like a sort of shady person reading pornographic <laughs> novel on the bus. <laughs> it's like it's actually just uh, social mores of the 1930s. <laughs> oh dear! But luckily, no one paid any attention to what I was reading on the bus. <laughs> no one ever does really, do they? It's only people like us who do. Yeah, I stare at people, people's books when they're when they're reading them. But I've yet to approach anybody. One day I might. Although there was a time when I was getting off the train in the Oval um, and discovered only as I stood up to get my luggage from the overhead rack that I and the lady behind me had both been reading Mr. Norris Changes Trains by Christopher Isherwood all the way on the train. <laughs> well, there you are. That was fun. I almost liked Christopher Isherwood, but then I thought, actually, I don't, don't particularly like this book. I'm not sure I want to make a bond over it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read any Isherwood? Um, I haven't. I have lots of his books, but I haven't ever read any of them. Yes, I've read one, and I think I've read about nine. So, <laughs> you have to beat me on that one. 
Um, what was I going to ask? Oh, yeah, so do recall a friend who, of my parents who borrowed a book, which they then dropped in the bath. <laughs> in their defence, they did say, oh, I'll buy you another copy, but then the copy they bought was one of those ones that was so badly bound all the pages were falling out anyway. No. <laughs> no I never take books near water. <laughs> I've had too many horrible experiences where, you know, I did have a horrible experience where I at work this year when I'd just been to the charity shop and bought a load of books at lunchtime and was very excited. And then I had a catastrophic water bottle leakage um, <gasps> oh no. on my way home. And I was like walking along, I was like, oh, I feel like water's dripping from somewhere. And I was like, oh my goodness, it's dripping from my bag. And it was all, I had all my piano music in there. Oh, no. I had all of my, um, um, all the books, you know, and, and I thought, oh, it's fine, I'll put them all in the airing cupboard, but they still went awfully wavy. Oh, yeah. So well, the best thing to do, in fact, um, this is a top tip for you and listener alike, is to put them in the freezer. If they really? Get so you put them in the freezer overnight, and then you put them in the fridge to defrost, and they get a lot less wavy, and, and I don't know oh. why, I presume science. But if you put them in the airing cupboard or on a radiator or something, they'll, they'll all crumple up. But yeah, they, they sort of freeze and slowly frost means they don't get too too damaged. But for some reason, also, I mean, it's still like noticeable, but it's much better than putting it in somewhere hot. Hey, well, that is a good tip. I'm going to do that. Um, and I think I learned this when someone told me that the body in, and I don't know if this is true, have sort of like a freezer company that they contact with. They get a sprinkler or something. They'll just brush all the books into a huge freezing vault or something or freezer if you will <laughs> <laughs> to coin a term <laughs> uh, so there you go sorry if that doesn't work everyone but it's worked for me in the past um well, the, <laughs> either something. way the book's ruined so you might as well try anything sure you might as well yeah that's how i feel about it <laughs> um i bought some piano music at the weekend i was in malvern for the for a day um, in Malvern Bookshop, which I thought was closed, but in fact was bought by someone, so it was still there. Um, I had a big table co- covered in not just piano music, just lots of different music. So I was rooting through it to try and find something fun. What did you get? I got something by Rachmaninoff, that kind of thing, of what it was, um, and a book of jazz um, okay, music, so that's nice. Um, and I, while I was in Malvern, I saw the play Present Laughter by Noel Coward, which was really fun. In fact, that's why I was there. We went to see Quentin Theatre. Is it far from Oxford? Um, it's about an hour and a half on the train. Um, it's back in Worcestershire, in the land of my upbringing. Nice. Um, be, be yeah, I love that the theatre is in the provinces. Yes, and it's sort of, it's, it was one of the closest theatres to me growing up, so it's my, not that I went to theatre very often growing up, but that was one of the places. That there and Tewkesbury had one as well. Those are the two places I saw a theatre before I'd ever seen it in London. <laughs> um, and Present Laughter is doing its little tour of the provinces, so presumably we'll be in London at some point. Well, that's always good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't so, possibly go anywhere else. No, of course. Although my friend Andrea, who was there, did come from London. Well. There was a direct train. Heavens. <laughs> but she's only lived there a year. She hasn't, she hasn't become one of you yet. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it happens in the end to everyone. <laughs> Just become awfully denigrating of anyone who comes from anywhere else or who wishes to go anywhere else. <laughs> Appalling. Yeah. <laughs> I spend much of my life trying to persuade people from London that the distance from London to anywhere else is the same as the distance from anywhere else to London. And they say, well, I can't go there, it's too far. It's like, well, it's the same distance for me to get to you. <laughs> 
Yeah, but there's nothing to do where you are. That's the whole point. To see me. <laughs> well, yeah, no, you are the attraction. Yeah. Oxford is lovely, I will admit. So sure, I yes, yes, Oxford has many things you can do. Yes. Malvern I have been to Oxford frequent, on frequent occasions. Well, next time, come and have a cup of tea with me. Yes, well, I shall. I want to be taken to that place that does the tea by the river. Oh, yes, in Kirtlington. There's, there's, I was there, in fact, last weekend as well, on the Sunday. Action-packed well, weekend. So um, I'm just, you know, burning the candle at both ends. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, dear. This is our most rambling podcast ever, <laughs> I think. This is ridiculous. Can we um, not unseamlessly um, move on to the next topic? Well, we need to make our decision on this one oh, first. Well, I think, well, yes, I mean, I'm... Well, it depends for me on what type of book it is. I'm, I'm, I'm going to need you to pick one. Well, do you know what? I think, actually, for the purposes of posterity, I would say manhandle. Hmm. So that was a strange news. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth Williams just wandered in for a moment, but he's gone now. So um, I am perhaps as surprised as nobody going to go for... I can't remember what the, what the dichotomy was. Well, was it careful? Just careful? Yes. Careful. <laughs> there we are. No surprises there. No. But I am a bit surprised by yours. So there you go. Well, you know, um, I like to throw these surprises out sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> don't like to be predictable. But at least there's a very good reason for it, not just I don't care. Yes. That's it. Absolutely. Um, yes, our second topic um, is one that I have strong-armed Richland to. Um, yes. So these are... Um, two novels I very much love and in fact um, wrote chapters on for my PhD so um, this is gonna, I'm going to have to be cut off at some point essentially because <laughs> I could talk about them all, all day um, instead I'm just going to introduce The Love Child and then I'll leave you to introduce Lolly Willis since you just read it if that's alright Can I ask a question before? Oh please do Am I allowed to reveal what happens in the third section or not? Oh of Lolly Willis, that's a good question um, Hmm, what do you think? Well, I think it would kind of ruin the surprise. It would ruin the surprise, but I don't know if we're going to be able to talk about it without it. How about we? you don't in the introductory bit, and then as we continue to discuss it, we will we'll probably have to discuss it, but we can flag up spoilers. Okay. So, yes, listen to the introduction, to, or as we explain the book, and after that, dear listener, everything's up for grabs. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, The Love Child uh, by... Edith Olivier is um, was published in 1927. Um, it has been a variety of modern classics since then, and it was Edith Olivier's first novel. It's about a uh, lonely spinster who's um, just her parents have died, and she, um, to sort of find solace, she r- recalls the childhood imaginary friend she had um, called Clarissa, and she just pretends to play with her again in her mind little knowing that Clarissa will then appear suddenly. Um, and so the novel sort of covers how she deals with this child that only she can see um, and the power struggle that develops between the two of them as Clarissa starts to want, over the years, to want a bit more freedom than Agatha is happy to give her. Um, and I think it's a really beautiful and poignant little novel um, and also much better than everything else that Olivier wrote. We'll come to that later. Um, <laughs> Lolly Willows, over to you. Yeah, so Lolly Willows is about Laura Willows, who, like in The Love Child, is a spinster. Um, so she's only 28 at the beginning of the novel. So <laughs> it's written off is, is quite painful for someone who is more advanced in age than that now. Um, but she is, um, the beginning of the novel, it's sort of Edwardian period, and she is the stereotypical woman at home, um, and 
she is devoted to her father. They live in a vicarage in the countryside and, you know, she doesn't want anything more from her life. She's not really interested in men. She's gone to parties. She's met men. She doesn't really float her boat. She's quite happy just being at home. Um, and then sadly her father dies. She is left on the mercy of her, of either of her married brothers and one of her brothers and his wife takes, take her in and she moves to London to live with them. And, she, you know, for the next 20 years, she's just living with them, part of their life. Um, she doesn't have any life of massive life of her own, but she's not unhappy. She just, you know, she does what she she goes shopping. She sees things, but it's um, nothing major happens in her life. And then one day, all of a sudden, she goes into a shop to buy some flowers and she has this desperate longing to go to the countryside again and she just ups and moves to a village called Great Mop. Um wonderful day. Isn't it wonderful, um, yeah. <laughs> Berkshire, isn't it? There, I think the village is Berkshire, yeah. Or Buck no, it's pretty sure it's Berkshire. Um okay. so she, moves, she moves out there and to this village and there's something a little bit strange about the people who live there, but she's not, you know, she's quite keeps herself to herself, so she's not too worried about it. But then very interesting events go on to occur and um she finds a home there in a, a very unexpected way very nicely put mm. so yes from now on there will be spoilers yeah. probably <laughs> everyone so yes that one was published in 1926 so in fact we are they're very close to each other both about spinsters um and both about spinsters who find an escape from their loneliness or unhappiness or dissatisfaction perhaps um through the fantastic yes um so I, I think it's fair to say that I probably remember The Love Child more closely than you do, <laughs> based on our discussion before this podcast. But having just read Lolly Willows, um, do you think it was worth me making you read it? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I really enjoyed it. Um, as I said to you, I didn't massively love the third section. Um, because tell, I, tell us about the third section now. I okay, think. so basically, um, she is living in a village full of witches um, and sells her soul to the devil. Yes. <laughs> um, which is an interesting turn of events that I wasn't expecting. Um, unfortunately, I did make the rookie mistake of reading the introduction. Oh, no. Uh, so I yeah. didn't know that that was going to happen. But it, it happened in a much more sudden way than I expected. She doesn't, um, Sylvia Townsend Warner doesn't kind of feel the need to explain. It just happens and you accept it. Um, yes. <laughs> which I think is, you know, great way of dealing with it, because otherwise you'd have to go into miles of explanation of psychological things. Um, but it's, I, I found it absolutely fascinating, actually, for this depiction of a, the life of a spinster, of someone who's very much considered to be um, a kind of part of the furniture. She's just somebody that someone, everyone else has to look after, and she's parceled around as if she doesn't have any independent spirit of her own, and she's expected to just fall in with what everyone else thinks is best for her. Um, and she you knows she's no one's unkind to her, but it's it's just this kind of smugness that they all have. Oh, poor Lolly, you know, we'll have to do this for her, we'll have to do that for her. And when she says to her brother, actually, do you know what? I'm um, I'm going to move to this cottage in the countryside just because I saw it on a map and I fancy it. Um, he's just like, don't be so absurd. You're staying here with me, where I'll look after you. And at this point, she's nearly fifty. Yeah. Yet still, her brother feels the need to to baby her and belittle her. Um, and he's the one who's lost all her savings as yeah, well. He's um, lost her savings, so she can't get the house that she wants. Um, and 
you know, all of a sudden, I love the fact that she just has this sudden resolve of, no, I'm, I'm taking charge of my life. I'm fed up of being told what to do and of having to live on other people's charity um, and having to be this person in someone else's house. And I love the fact that she's given the second best guest bedroom yeah. house of her brother and sister-in-law. And she lives there for over 20 years and she's never given a better bedroom. You never moved out. Um, and they do this. Oh, sorry. I just, yeah, I mean, I just think it's amazing of, of this kind of forgotten period of time when women did live like that. Yeah, I think um, it, it is a, particularly the first, well, in fact, yeah, the first two thirds of the novel are this wonderful sort of domestic novel. Um, the writing is beautiful and the way she describes things, it's never just, it's never like, I know Ibsen or something where it's just misery heaped on misery. It's this, she's described as being like a piece of furniture at one point and she is like, she does a piece of furniture to be slotted into this house. Yeah. Um, and she's expected to look after her nephew and she's expected to, you know, take the same respect as you say. She's, she's not considered autonomous even while she's this, she's always this quirky, strange character. In fact, there's an early scene where they, um, are trying to set her up with someone and she just yeah. calls him a werewolf and, and it's, um, I think she said, yeah, I think she calls her a And she, so she's never this placid woman who just puts up with everything. But at the same time, her quirkiness just, that is like, oh, that's just Lolly. She's just, or Laura. She's just in, in the second best bedroom being slightly strange, but we'll put up with her. Um, as though they were doing her a favour whilst at the same time they're basically just quashing her life and using her as free childcare. <laughs> yeah, and I think what's really interesting is that no one ever asks her what she wants. No. It's just assumed that oh this is this is what she'll this is what we'll do and she'll be grateful for it and I it made me I felt so angry reading it actually that you know this is obviously the way many women were treated it's like well you know you don't have a male protector um and you know you so someone else will tell you what to do and you're just expected not to have any desires of your own um or any capacity to be able to fulfil those desires. In fact, one of those doing research um, for writing that, I came across an article in Time and Type by Winifred Holtby called A Vindication of Aunts, which um, is she was inspired by Lolly Willows to write it. And it is just, it's this sort of quite retributive in a, in a great way um, essay about how um, the profession, professional aunt, not the company, the professional aunts who existed at the time, but, but aunts who, that's expected to be their life, they are just an aunt who looks after the nephew. Or they, they're, they're just you know, dependent on the, on the male. Uh, relative and that's it um, but the scene you mentioned in the shop I just love the way she writes that she just you know what she, she's looking at um, some flowers or, or yeah. a small plant or something and she suddenly imagines herself in a forest reaching up into a tree for an apple yeah that's which a, beautiful, is a beautiful passage it's really lovely and, and later you can see oh is she Eve the sort of like portent of that um, going on there but um, yes it's just the way, way the Sylvia Tanz Warner describes a love of the countryside or just a longing for the countryside as someone who longs for the countryside, I <laughs> completely, completely get that. And as Sylvia Townsend, one herself, uh, loved Dorset very dearly and like, the, lived in the countryside there um, at various times, as well as living in London earlier. Um, so yeah, she writes that really beautifully. And, and, and that village that she sets up um, is described in a way that, despite its quirks, <laughs> makes it seem um, like a wonderful place to live. I, I love the bit where she talks about... Um, looking around it with a map um, and going on all these walks and then then throwing the map down yeah. this disused well because she just wants to experience nature as nature rather than as mapped out by man. Yeah, and I love that the kind of, in the book, the countryside for her is a symbolic of freedom and 
of being able to be the person that she is. And in when she moves to the village, nobody bothers her. Nobody wants to find out much about her. Nobody's really interested in her, but not in a kind of a negative way, but in a, you know, you're here and this is who you are and we accept you and you're free to yeah, live and let live sort of thing. Exactly. Um, yes, in fact, I'm going to keep referring to what I would do my research on, sorry. <laughs> but, um, but, um I, yeah, I was arguing that the whole novel is about seeking autonomous space and it is all about um, her not being independent in her, in the space that she lives in. It's all about her having some sort of control over her space. And that's limited in a way because it is a rented house she moves to. Yeah. But, but, um, but the open countryside is, is her space. This, she goes to a field at one point that she describes yeah. as being like a room and it's like she's made her her living space in the countryside. And then you get the whole devil bit. That bit's strange. Yeah, that bit, that bit is strange. And that that bit I found quite difficult um, in terms... But I understand why she's included that element of the novel. And I think it's very interesting. And I think it's also very interesting that, um, you know, normally you'd find somebody in this kind of period, somebody would find their release in God, for example. But this, mm. it's the devil and this idea that, um, for in order for a woman to be able to live the life that she wants, she has to turn away from all of the accepted situations and you know institutions in society, um, and she has to turn to something that's outside of society altogether, in order to achieve some element of independence and freedom. What is really interesting about it is, um, in terms of the way it's been received over time, is that it's often seen as this like feminist polemic of great success is um, that she like successfully evades the patriarchy um, whereas my reading of it which I, doesn't seem that out there for me but I've discovered on giving papers on it at various conferences that it is a bit unusual is that actually selling yourself to the devil isn't a great bid for freedom it's, it's this sort of interesting compromise where he appears as the figure of a man she's still sold to a, um, sold her life to a man who may be indifferent and may be um, let's say get on with it <laughs> But indifference is hardly freedom. No. It's this bit curious. Yeah, I think it's just curious sort of ending suggesting that this isn't a completely successful securement, but what she has secured is control over where she lives, even if she hasn't somehow controlled, got the same control over her own life. Yeah, and I, I mean, I certainly felt that she wasn't happy with doing that. Like, she wasn't comfortable with the devil. She wasn't comfortable with the sacrifice that she'd had to make. Like, you know, she wasn't comfortable with the fact that um, he was there. And he's not mm. a kindly or a benevolent presence. And he's not also not someone that she conjured up herself. He came and took her. That's what it's described mm. as. Mm. So it is, again, this idea of, of absolutely male control and it, of how women's lives are very much, have to be, certainly at the time when she was writing, were still very much made up of compromises because there was no opportunity for women to be free. Yeah, and the, she talks in interviews about having drawn on Margaret Murray's book about witch cult of Western Europe. Um, and in, I read that as well for, for my research. And um, she writes about the fact that there were these cults that did have the devil here as a woman. Um, and so if Superhead Warner had wanted it to be this yeah. complete escape from, from the patriarch and from, from masculinity, then she could have um, made the devil a woman in it yeah. and, chose, and chose not to. What I do find interesting is that a reading that claimed that it was... Um, I mean, Sibitan's a woman who was herself a lesbian, and a lot of people tried to read it as 
a sort of very much a lesbian book, and they did read one that suggests that it must be a lesbian book because there are no men in the village. I thought there there are men in the village. <laughs> You're just ignoring these characters. No, I found I the introduction actually to my version and the latest Virago one is by Sarah Waters, and she makes a very strong case for it being a, a book. A lesbian book, you know, about Sylvia Tanner and Warner talking it like, and that, uh, that Lolly is a lesbian. And, um, but I didn't, I, the examples that she gave, when I looked at them in the context, I thought that's very far fetched and I wouldn't have read that into it at all. Um, yeah, I, su- I suspect it wouldn't have been read in as much if Sylvia, if she hadn't been a, a lesbian herself, no. Sylvia Tanner Warner. And in fact, at the time of writing it, she was living with a man. So it was only later that she had her, well, as far as we know, her first relationship with a woman. But, um, yeah, interesting. And let's move on to the love child. Mm. Um, so we talked about this just after we finished recording last time, because I went back to read your review, which is very glowing, <laughs> but perhaps was for my benefit <laughs> and kind and your kind nature. What Can you remember what you thought of it? Well, you know, I think I didn't dis- like actively dislike it. I think it was just so different to what I'd read before that it came as quite a sub- like it's not a genre that I'd ever dabbled in before so mm. I was quite surprised I think again I found the element of the fact of her being a spinster very interesting and the way in which you know this child does offer her this escape and I think that tussle for um power between the two of them is very interesting as well um and it is, yeah, I mean, that element of it I find very interesting, but I did, I, I mean, I just really struggle. I'm not a fantasy reader at all, so I I really struggled to make the leap when mm. the, when this, you know, made-up child becomes real. Um, I was just like, I can't really get my head around it, <laughs> and I'm not entirely invested in it. But I did think it was very well written, and I think, as you say, it is very poignant, and this sense of this kind of these lives that were just unfulfilled it just came through the novel so powerfully and it was explored and really you know I do think that the way in which she's explored the the complete insufficiency of options for women who never married um and this in such an interesting way of having it in this this kind of pretend child is really interesting yeah I think um I similarly am not at all interested in novels set in fantasy worlds it's um but I bizarrely really love books that are fantastic so the way i wrote about that the way i think about that is fantasy is a book that's set in like you know a different universe like tolkien or whatever um and fantastic is set in this world but with one or maybe a couple elements of of the fantastic brought into it um like both these novels um and i think the reason i really love that sort of treatment which which happened a lot in the 20s is because it um it just gives that fresh look or new angle on normal life at the time. So both these women are experiencing things that millions of women experience, particularly, you know, all these unmarried women after the First World War with far more women than men in the population. Um, and so it, just, it looks at those everyday lives and puts this quirky touch on it to, to give you, I don't know, a fresh, a fresh look on it. Um, which, well, what's interesting I've heard about The Love Child is that it was around that time that... Um, Adoption was becoming more of a thing. Um, a lot of people were adopted after the war um, who didn't have parents. And so there's the scene in the middle of it where she has to adopt the child, um, um, Clarissa, and she, a policeman comes to go through all the notes with her and she has to try and explain where Clarissa's come from. In the end, basically just says that she says she's my love child, which um, 
in one sense is right because she was created out of you know her love of this imaginary childhood friend, best friend, but obviously um, brings that you know, the sense of love child of having her out of wedlock and all that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I think it's a really interesting look at what was going on with unmarried women and with orphans, I guess, at the time as well. Yeah, I just I think one of the reasons why I found it quite hard going as well is because I just just find it so sad. Is certainly is I mean it's Agatha is quite a tragic figure and and when that happiness comes to her and you start to see it going away there's a bit where um, they they play orbits and um, they've been reading about planets orbiting or moons orbiting planets and all that and Clarissa wants to play orbits with her she sort of grabs a piece of string and runs around and around her and you sort of you get the sense and it may even be explicit in the novel that that she's going to fly out of that orbit that she's going to lose connection with with Agatha. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so David comes along and, and wants to take Clarissa off driving, and they start maybe. So Clarissa's grown up a bit, and actually, about 17, 18, I think. Um, and she and David may start a romance. And what happens then when this imaginary child goes out of the sphere of its, have her sort of unknowing creator's control? Um, but all of, all of this done in a very ordinary house, very ordinary people, very ordinary setting. So it's none of, it doesn't, it didn't feel to me like it was, um, too, I guess, otherworldly because it's so concretely placed in that normal world. No, and I think that's what's really interesting about both of them, actually, because, the, like I said, the fantasy element, certainly in Lolly Willows, I it was just, I was just like, okay, I just accepted mm, it mm. because it was very much rooted within a still a very believable and very recognisable world, and it was, you know, it was all very dealt with very matter of factly, and I was like, well, okay, if everybody else is. <laughs> we'll just go along with that. Yeah, fine. Um, and it was it was all kicked off in the twenties with um, Lady into Fox by David Garnett in nineteen twenty two, yeah. which is it's a very very matter of fact narrative. It's done quite all these extraordinary events. Well, that's I guess extraordinary event dealt with very plainly, and he sort of set that trend for fantastic things happening. But none of them seem to be like astonished for long, or even if the character is astonished for a bit, then the narrator never seems to be. It's just this right. happened. And I think that's the thing. The narrative voice isn't isn't surprised, so you're not surprised. You're just like, okay, fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it kind of works. And, you know, actually, now we're talking about this, I kind of want to read The Love Child again because I think maybe I would have... I've missed bits of it that now I've read Lolly Willows and I'm actually this genre isn't as weird as I thought. I would actually be interested in, in reading uh, it again. It's very short, so you can <laughs> get through it quickly. <laughs> um, I think... Sorry, you go. I was going to ask whether um, Sylvia Townsend Warner's books, is this a feature of them? Does she use a fantastic in every book? She doesn't. Um, in fact, I think it's the only one. Oh. Um, I've not read all of them. Um, and in fact, it's the only one of hers I actually particularly like, although I do know she has a lot of fans. Other ones. So she's very, she seems very unusual to me in that all her books cover such different things and often quite different tones. So there's um, Mr. Fortune's Maggot, which is about a missionary in in some far distant island uh, losing his faith there's um, The Corner to Help Them which is several centuries in the history of a nunnery uh, there's Summer Will Show which is about um, two women in love with each other in the Par- in the French Revolution yeah. so so yeah she danced all over the place in fact Lolly Willows is the only book she wrote that was set in the UK in what was for her the present time everything else either historical or set somewhere else oh how interesting yeah um, she just seems yeah all over the place. And she wrote, yeah, she, she wrote a few others that I haven't read. 
Um, and I do know some people particularly love The Corner That Held Them, which I found one of the most boring books I've ever read. Oh, <laughs> it's just, I found it so tedious, but I do know that some people really love that one, so you might get on better with it than I did. Okay. But someone told me it was their favourite book, I think. I think, um, or at least their favourite Virago, but yeah. Oh, wow. Really, really struggled with that one. <laughs> and she also wrote loads and loads of short stories, of course, that um, William Maxwell was involved yeah. with editing. So I've still not read any of those, but I've got lots on my shelf. I'm sure that you do. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, in fact, similarly, Edith Olivier, um, her other novels aren't um, fantastic, except, well, she wrote one called Dwarf's Blood, which is about um, a, well, what she called dwarf, a little person who, um, which obviously isn't fantastic, but the way she seems to understand genetics is quite fantastic. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, she wrote one called The Seraphim Room, which is mostly about the fact that a, a particular house doesn't have drains. So, so, right. so yeah, it's quite a movie. Um, it, it was a bit of a trait at the time that authors would write one fantastic book in the midst of writing all these other books that aren't fantastic, which is um, it's interesting they tend to get it out of the way in one book and nice. <laughs> find other ways to write about things for the rest of them. But I, I wouldn't particularly recommend any of Edith Olivier's other books. I don't think... Yeah, I don't think that's just me. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll save myself on that one. <laughs> They're also impossible to get hold. I should know Bello reprinted a whole bunch of them, so if you do want to try them. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I shouldn't bother. Okay. Um, well, yeah. that's a shame, because I was thinking, that. Like, oh, I mean, I'd be interested to... I mean, what other fantastic books would you recommend of this period? Oh, thank Oh, this is like a treat for me. <laughs> um... So yeah, those those two and Love and Lady and the Fox are up there. Uh, the Venetian Glass Nephew by Eleanor Wiley is very good. Um, she, she was actually a friend of Edith Olivier's as well. Um, I always wondered if, they, since they both wrote these sort of creation novels right next to each other, I wondered if one had copied the other. But um, <laughs> the Venetian Glass Nephew is about this um, Venetian friar monk, something like that, set in the 18th century, who. Um, He's lonely and he he doesn't want a wife, but he he would like a relative. So he he crafts this nephew out of glass and and has a similar trajectory to Agatha and Clarissa in that the nephew then falls in love with um, a human girl. I think his name is called Rosalie. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so that's that's a very good book. Um, and of course, going on a bit, Miss Halgraves. <laughs> well, I was waiting. It all makes sense now, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think which other ones I would particularly recommend. I really enjoyed Rachel Ferguson's, um, of course, the Bronte Centre Woolworths. Yeah. Fit in. The one I was going to say was a half in Lounge Square, um, or Lounge Square, don't know how to pronounce that, um, which is about um, sort of shifting space within a house and that they, if you look over the stairs at one point, you can see the future. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, oh, and The Haunted Woman by David Lindsay is a really fun one about... This big mansion where if you go up a, some stairs, which is what made me think of it, to a particular room, then you have all these bizarre sort of metaphysical experiences but can't remember them when you go back down and the staircase disappears when you come back down. Um, which is very interesting for ideas but not particularly well written. So. Oh. Yeah, but I, I still really enjoyed it. <laughs> was this like a real trend in the 20s? Well, it was, and I think it's partly because Lady and the Fox was so popular at the time, um, and partly... Well, I argued in my thesis, at least, that it was a, a way of dealing with societal issues that you couldn't otherwise talk about. So I talked about spinsterhood and um, and Lolly Willows and childlessness and the love child um, and the changing role of women's sexuality in marriage and Lydia and Fox. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does seem to be a kind of... It's, uh... 
it's a non-threatening way, I think, of of bringing up issues. But then at the same time, I do feel that in some way it kind of also trivialises them. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I think in some ways, it, I mean, obviously, yes, I can see what you mean if a generation of women who want children but can't, or some women who want children but can't have them in, in the 20s, this imaginary child is a trivialisation to that. But I think... I guess because it's none of them, in fact, seem to be very happy. They're these very distorted fairy tales, all the yeah. all the different things in the 20s and 30s. It is, they all seem to say there isn't a simple solution. Um, even this fantastic solution isn't a solution. No. Okay. Um, in fact, yes, I didn't come across any that were just fairy tales, you know, Cinderella-esque. The nearest is probably His Monkey Wife by John Collier, <laughs> which does end up, well, you can probably guess what happens from the title. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he's quite happy. <laughs> I bet he is. <laughs> yes, he's, um, there's a very strange scene in there. <laughs> but well, I mean, it's certainly something to explore. I think, well, I mean, unsurprisingly, it's a topic that I'm besotted with completely. <laughs> um, I think these two novels we're discussing are definitely good gateways into it. I think they're both very... Particularly for people listening who, who, who like domestic novels of the 20s and 30s, it's not that much of a step away. <laughs> no, and I do think actually from having Lolly Willows very fresh in my mind, the domestic details are fascinating and it is beautifully written. Um, mm. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, the way, I mean, if she had just not put that final third in, I think it would still be a brilliant yeah. domestic novel. In fact, I thought the same. I was like, well, even without this, I mean, you could have stopped at the end of section two and it still would have been fascinating. Mm. And, you know, a real insight into the situation of, of unmarried women in the 20s and also just of life in the 20s. She's got a real eye for detail about little mm. food and decoration and things like that, so I just loved it. Yeah, in some ways I wish she just trusted herself to write a book about everyday life as she saw it rather than always needing the, you know, the big time period or the or the country or, or the fantastic or all these sort of, not really gimmicks because she doesn't, they're treated respectfully and they work well, but I think if she just said, I want to write a novel about living in Dorset, it would have been amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm assuming of the two, you are then going to go with Roy Willows. I am, yeah. Um, this is obviously very tough for me. <laughs> but, um, but I think I actually would pick The Love Child. Um, I do really love them both. But there's something about The Love Child um, and the sort of poignancy in the, in the way it's written. Um, yeah, I, just, I just love it. I, can, I read it often. So I'm going to pick that one. Okay. Great. Yeah. And next time, it's your turn to impose one on me, although it's not much of an imposition, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> um, I can't remember what, which, what we're comparing it with. But no, I can't either. <laughs> well, we're definitely doing To the North yeah. by Elizabeth Bowen, and I think it's with The House in Paris. Yes, I think so, yeah. yeah that makes sense. I've only read two Elizabeth Bowen ones so <laughs> before now, so it's definitely one of those two. Let's say it is. We can make this decision, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yes, next time, To the North, which I've yet to read, um, and The House in Paris... The House in Paris? A House in Paris? The House in Paris. Paris. Both by Elizabeth Bowen, who is one of the most fantastic writers in the world. But not in the way that Sylvia Tazmoner and Ethan are fantastic. Fantastic (laughs) as in exquisite. Yes. (laughs) Great. Um, It's very nice to be back, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye.